Can you hear me? Great. Good evening, everyone. My name is Hany Musa. I'm a pastoral assistant with Redeemer Lane, and I have the immense privilege of preaching the Word of God to you tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you seeking your help, seeking that you speak to us tonight, seeking that whatever is said be the oracles of God. Father, we confess freely that no one is sufficient for these things, that we are dry and barren without the work of your Spirit. So, Father, will you help us and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that your words flow and give us life tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, yesterday, completely unrelated to this, I was listening to a lecture in biblical interpretation, and the professor was saying that if someone is preaching for the first time and you assign them narrative to preach, it's highly irresponsible of the church leadership. So if this goes south, you know who to talk to afterwards. <laughs> All right, so tonight we're going to talk about the book of Ruth. We love stories, right? Who doesn't love a good story? They fascinate us. We're gripped by stories of war and peace, crime and punishment, knights and dragons, aliens and predators, strength of body and heart, stories of love, strife, mystery, adventure, all sorts of stories. We just love them. We identify with the heroes and, well, the, the heroes of the stories we read and more so the stories we watch. Our hearts race when they're in trouble and we're relieved when they make it. We want them to win despite the long odds and when they win, we actually feel like we won, right? We love good stories. But a story of a small family that has to move to a nearby country because of an economic downturn, and there the father dies and the sons die, only the mother remains. And then they have to travel back to their own country, and the daughter-in-law follows, where they live in poverty for some time, and, and finally she marries a rich farmer. That's not exactly a riveting story, is it? But that's exactly what the Book of Ruth is. It is this kind of story. If you're not familiar with it at all, I just summarized it for you. You just need to know the names of the characters and where it took place. Um, the small family moved from the land of Israel in the time of the judges because of famine, moved to Moab, where all the men died. Only the mother, Naomi, remains. One of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite, returns with her to the land of Israel where they live in poverty for some time, but she eventually marries a rich relative, Boaz, and gives, and gives birth to Obed, who's that, who then becomes the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's it. The story is over. Um, um, that's, sure, that, that is the Bible. It's not Hollywood. It's not a news outlet. It's not even your social media feed. So the criteria for inclusion have to be somewhat different, right? Um, but still, it doesn't seem to help the story very much, at least at first glance. It lacks um, heroes like Joshua. It doesn't recount earth-shattering divine interventions like the plagues that God brought against Egypt or the splitting of the Red Sea in Exodus. And it features no amazing promises like those God made to Abraham in Genesis. God doesn't appear to anyone or talk to anyone. He's hardly even mentioned in the book. And what was Ruth's crowning achievement? She had a kid. If you were to put a label on this story, you would call it ordinary. This is an ordinary story of ordinary people, like you and me. But it's in the Bible, and that makes all the difference. 
This may be stating the obvious, but Bible narratives are historical accounts of God and of his people. They're not told for entertainment. That's kind of a recent development in storytelling. They're told for edification, for the building up of believers in the faith. Um, listen to this famous verse from 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we read the book of, of Ruth expecting that our faith will be built up. The storyline of the book follows Ruth, and if we're to benefit from it, the easiest way is to do the same. Follow Ruth around in three scenes where we will see, number one, her confession of faith, number two, the test of faith, and number three, the rewards of faith. So here's scene number one, Ruth's confession of faith. The opening scenes in chapter one are sad. Um, after more than 10 years of sojourning in Moab, all the men in Naomi's family die, her husband and her two sons, and because she hears the famine is over, she sets out to go back to the land of Israel and both her, and both her daughters-in-law go with her. But Naomi won't let them. She says to them in chapter one, verses eight through 13, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters. Go your way for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi gives reasonable advice, doesn't she? She points out three things that makes it the sensible decision for Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab. Firstly, they should go back to their family, their mother's houses, implying that if they were to be provided for, it's only natural for them to seek being with their own families. Unmarried women relocating to a foreign land in the ancient world is not exactly the best retirement plan. Secondly, if they were to have any hope of having future husbands and bearing children, they should stay in their country, where the chance of someone from their own culture coming forth and marrying them is greatest, as they'll probably be rejected if they go to the land of Israel. Now, the text doesn't say this, but maybe Naomi had in mind what Moses said, what God said in Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when, they, when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Their chances of marriage and having children in the land of Israel are next to none. And thirdly, she's saying, even if they were to marry one of Naomi's other sons, according to custom, well, tough luck, they don't exist. And even if she got married and had them, that's too long to wait. Naomi just makes sense, and apparently her smarter daughter-in-law, Orpah, listened to her, and with great sadness, left her behind and went back to her family. For we next read this, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, as that is, kissed her goodbye, but truth clung to her. And Naomi said to Ruth, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah listened to reason. She went back to where reason tells her she would prosper. Never mind that going back meant going back to false gods. The Lord God of Israel is not in her view. And her present needs were the occasion for reason to lead her back to paganism. We never hear of her again, but we know the end of idolatry. Reason that excludes God is broken and is ultimately foolishness. It is what the Bible calls sight, and it stands diametrically opposite to faith. That is not blind, by the way, and takes no leaps in the dark, but reasons on the basis of God's trustworthiness. Well, you're probably thinking, we thought this sermon was about truth, and he's been going on and on about everybody else. Well, it's, it's just the text. We're, Ruth so far hasn't done anything other than cling to her mother-in-law. Um, besides, Orba gives us a, an excellent contrast that really makes Ruth shine in this story. So when we read Ruth's first recorded words, we hear a very different kind of thinking in verses 16 and 17. She says, do not urge me, she says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's understandable that Truth loves her mother-in-law very much. <laughs> or maybe not. But what, why does she bring up God and calls him her God? Why does she talk about living among his people and being buried in his land? Do you see what's happening here? Orpah's God-excluding reason found occasion in her needs and led her away from God, while Ruth's God-rooted reason led her to Him, despite being in exactly the same circumstances. She had exactly the same needs. Ruth doesn't just call Him God, she uses His covenant name, Lord, Yahweh, that He revealed to Moses in the burning, in the burning bush. In an act of allegiance, she swears by His name saying, may the Lord do so to me. Her words echo those of Moses in Deuteronomy 10.20 to Israel. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Back then, you swore by the name of the God you served. Her words confess the Lord as her own Lord, and her actions affirm her confession. She's leaving behind her father, mother, brothers, sisters, and prospects of marriage and children to unite herself to God and to God's people. If her words echoed those of Moses, what she's doing reflects what Christ said about the cost of following him. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's how Jesus describes following him. We don't know what truth might have heard about God, about his promises, and about his mighty deeds from her husband and his family. It's not in the narrative, but we can see the kind of faith it produced in her. It is a genuine kind of faith, the kind that makes God your greatest treasure and causes everyone else and everything else to fade by comparison. Friend, let me ask you this. Does this describe your faith? Do your decisions reflect how precious God is to you? 
Do they reflect trust in his promises? If you're driven by what is practical, what makes financial sense, what is good for family, but you do not stop to consider how your decision fit with a God-pleasing pattern of life, then you have to stop and ask yourself whether your faith is real or simply lip service. But it's easy to counter everything I said by suggesting that maybe Ruth was just overcome by emotion. In her desire to remain with her mother-in-law, she overreacted and said more than she really meant, and that we're just reading too much into the situation. That, that's possible. That's a possible interpretation of this. But that is exactly the question the next scene is going to answer. So in the next scene, we see Ruth's faith tested. How do we know if faith is genuine? That is an important question. And I cannot answer it, but Jesus can. He answers it for us in the parable of the sower. He tells us of those, that those who come into contact with God's word are either fruitful or unfruitful. There is no third group when you hear God's word. He describes some of the unfruitful groups of hearers as follows. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but they go on their way. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Some people are just emotionally more responsive than other people, or they just like, quote-unquote, spirituality. So they get excited about God and about following Him, and may even make some commitment. But when following God makes life hard, or when life just gets busy, or even when it, set, when it gets good with riches and pleasures, God just gets, either gets crowded out, or they decide that it's not worth it all this hardship in life to keep following after God. Do you know people like that? Are you like that? But the last group of people Jesus speaks of in the parable is the fruitful group. Of this group, he says, as for that, as in that seed in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. We obviously cannot see anybody's heart, only God can, but we can see fruit. And the key word here is patience. They, pers they persevere on the straight and narrow. To them, to have God is worth giving up comfort, convenience, health, privilege, money, and relationships. It's worth sustaining loss and hardship every day of their lives. And in the midst of all this, their hearts sink to God. You are worthy. Paul was like that, wasn't he? This is exactly what we read him saying in Philippians 3. And more importantly, this is what, how we see him live in the book of Acts. So was Ruth's faith tested? And did she pers persevere or did she fall away? This is what we read next. Ruth makes it to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem. And now we read in chapter 2, they have to face the daily grind. How do we get food? What do we do? With no male breadwinner in the family and her mother-in-law being elderly, Ruth goes out to find work. But what kind of work can an immigrant widow find in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago? Let's look at chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather after, among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So that's what she does. She's gleaning after the reapers. Reapers cut down the wheat with sickles and bind them in sheaves. Gleaners pick up what little wheat that has fallen after the reapers. You see, gleaning is not, is not really what we would define as a job. It requires no special, no special skill, no special knowledge. It's physically very strenuous. You bend over and you walk after the reapers the whole day under the sun, and no one gets rich off of it. In fact, we read in Leviticus 19 that gleaning was commanded by God as his way of providing for the poor and for the sojourner like Ruth. But when Boaz, who appears here for the first time, asks who she was, the reapers tell him, but they also report that she got there from the early morning and barely rested. Why? Why would she do that? She really didn't have to. She could have gone back to her country, to her family, and presumably cared and provided for. This is hard poverty by choice for no conceivable reason than the surpassing worth of God in her mind. Poverty and hardship tested the resolve of Ruth's faith, rather, but, and rather than fall away, she embraces them. She perseveres, and only genuine faith perseveres. What is it that tests your faith? What tempts you to fall away? What makes following after God feel like it's a chore or like it's not worth it? A hard relationship? Money? We must all be tested one way or the other. Abraham, the biblical pattern for faith, was tested. So you should expect the same. And the question is, how will each one of us respond when tested? So Ruth was tested, and it was clear that she was not going back. And that takes us to scene number three, the rewards of faith. So far, God hasn't shown up in the story, or, or has he? As a matter of fact, in the most subtle of ways, God controls the events of our story. Verse 3 of this chapter, chapter 2, very casually tells us that when Ruth was gleaning, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The same man identified earlier as worthy or a very wealthy relative of Naomi. And as she happened to be on his field, Boaz comes to check on his reapers. Coincidence? The Bible presents us with a God who is all-powerful, all-controlling, and sovereign, not only over nature, but also over people. There are no coincidences in the Bible worldview. How Ruth ended up on Boaz's field and why Boaz came at that time is a mystery, but that God arranged this, that is no mystery. This will become clearer as we read on. So Boaz takes note of the foreign widow and decides to protect her and care for her. But first he says this in verses 11 and 12. 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz not only immediately recognizes Ruth's actions as an act of faith in the Lord, but he also knows that God rewards this kind of active, genuine faith with a full reward. Even, even though not even Boaz fully understand the, the implications of this reward or what he's saying, but he knows God is not going to look the other way. He's going to reward this. At the end of that day, Ruth takes her gleanings and goes back to Naomi and tells her all that had happened. Naomi identifies Boaz not just as a relative, but as a close relative, a redeemer of theirs. So the man on whose field Ruth ends up gleaning is not only a wealthy relative, but a redeemer. Another coincidence? Not in this Bible. But what is a redeemer? According to the law, a redeemer is someone who has the duty of preserving the family name and property. This could be done through avenging a murdered family member, buying back family property that was sold to pay debts, or marrying the widow of a, disease, of a deceased relative. Chapters 3 and 4 recount for us how Boaz comes to firmly decide to redeem and to marry Ruth. But there is an obstacle. There is a closer relative than Boaz who must first decline the redemption duty before Boaz can buy Naomi's land and marry Ruth. So before the elders of the city, Boaz asks the redeemer, to fulfill his duty, and the man declines, allowing Boaz, who's next in line, to marry her. So we read in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. God rewarded her faith. She was joined to him by being joined to his people. God wasn't looking the other way, and he did it through his law that provided a redeemer for her, through the obedience of Boaz to the law, through the perseverance of her faith, and through his sovereign control over all events. Nobody orchestrates all these things to come together except God. Everything she left behind to follow after God, she received much more abundantly. Life with God is a life of reward, here and now. Please don't hear this as a reward of earthly riches. Nowhere in the New Testament are we promised health and wealth in this world. Here's what faith is promised to immediately receive in Ephesians 2. Listen to this. This is very eye-opening. Therefore, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you, like Ruth, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is God's reward for faith. This is God's promised blessing. 
Faith immediately brings us near to God. We're accepted by God, by the blood of Christ. It gives us hope in God and peace with Him and with one another where we had none. It makes us partakers of the covenants of promise. It makes us fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, just like it did for Ruth. But even more, it gives us access through the Spirit to the Father. We're reconciled to Him and we are free to worship. This is where life, this is where life finds its greatest fulfillment. Brothers and sisters, if you don't get excited, if your heart is not stirred by the present rewards of nearness to God and access to the Father in the Spirit, and if you don't enjoy expressing that in free worship, then I don't know what makes you tick. Friend, if these things are unattractive to you, empty or even meaningless, your eternal destiny is in danger. Come talk to one of the pastors after the service. You will not be judged. You will not be turned away. But God has more. Ruth and Boaz could not have imagined that their faith and faithfulness will make them the great-grandparents of David, the great king of Israel. But these are exactly the last words of the book. After Ruth bore the child, the women named Ruth's baby Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. But if that kind of honor was beyond Ruth's wildest imaginations, get this, it's, it doesn't end there. Ruth reappears again. In the New Testament, in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus as one of his ancestors, the incarnate Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, whom she loved and followed, she became one of his, of his ancestors. I'm pretty sure that that is not what she was aiming for when she left Moab. That's not what she was thinking she'll get. God's ultimate reward of faith is not something any, any of us can fully imagine. Ruth received the honor of being the grandmother of David and ultimately Jesus. But beloved, listen to the kind of ultimate reward that Jesus promises believers in Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, the one who lives by faith, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. On the face of it, the story of the book of Ruth is ordinary, but Jesus calls it conquering. In the age to come, it will not matter how ordinary, simple, or hard your life here is, just as it won't matter if you led a life full of excitement, achievement, and recognition. It will not matter whether you accumulated great wealth or lived in abject poverty, it will not matter whether you ruled a nation or you were a stay-at-home mom or you even never got married. None of this will matter. The only thing that will matter is whether you lived by faith or by sight. Let us pray. Father, we come in awe before you of your plans of redemption. Who would have thought that simple, ordinary people that have no merit in themselves would be brought into your plan for the universe, in your plan for history. We are ordinary people. None of us is a great man, none of us is a great woman, and neither do we want to be. All we want to be is near to you, be able to freely worship you through Jesus until the day comes and we're with you in heaven, worshiping freely forever. 
Will you keep us, Father, from falling away, from being tempted by anything that, is, that seems shining and beautiful in the world, and, and only following Christ, no matter what the cost? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.